Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everybody and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. This week we have a special guest. She's a 2D animator and art director. Clients that she's worked with span top brands such as Apple, Facebook, Nike, Comedy Central. She's worked at top studios such as Buck, Gentleman Scholar, Brand New School, Royale. It's so good to have you, Laura. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I always manage to stuff up people's names, so I'm going to try and pronounce your full name without being rude about it. So it's Laura (laughs) Yilmaz? Yep. Cool. You are animator and art director, and you come from LA, but now at the moment, you're in New Zealand working. Yes. Yeah. So quite a big change. (laughs) Do you want to just explain to everybody what your current role is, and then we'll dive into the history of how you got here a little bit after that. Sure, no problem. I mean, a big part of the um, the motivation for this move out to New Zealand was that I have taken a position as a senior lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington. It's been a bit of an industry change for me, although I am still working freelance with many of the same studios that I was working with when I was based in L.A., I'm wearing multiple hats at this point. So I've got the senior lecturer position here at Vic. Um, I'm still working freelance in the motion design industry. And ultimately, the kind of calculus that I'm making here is to uh, carve out a bit more space for my own personal work. And being an educator in a university is giving you that time and space to explore that work for yourself? Yeah, well, that's the idea. (laughs) I think a lot lot of people who work in universities will tell you that doesn't quite work out that way. And I am definitely experiencing that in my first year here. There's quite a lot to get used to and getting used to a university system, getting a bunch of new classes off the ground. We were starting brand new programs here at Vic. So it's definitely an exciting time, but has certainly eaten into that portion of my time that is meant to be devoted to my own stuff. So hopefully I'm looking forward to 2020 as the year that I'm going to get that stuff off the ground. Excellent. And you're fully moved over here now. I know that it's been yeah. a big year for you and transitioning from your life in the U.S. Yeah. So I've actually been out here in New Zealand since January, late January. But my husband, who works in games, was actually staying back in L.A. to wrap up a project that they finally released just a few weeks ago on Apple Arcade. And once he got that wrapped up, then he was able to come over here and bring our two cats who were very unhappy with the journey, but seem to have settled in quite nicely now that they're back on the ground. So, yep, we're all here now. Excellent. I'd love to talk about the um, actual course that you're creating at Vic in a bit, but just to sort of round out your past, you have worked at so many top studios and you continue to do so. How was that career path for you as an animator? Because I know that the subjects that you studied a long time ago quite varied in the scope. So how was it that you ended up entering to the motion design industry? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, one that I often ask myself, <laughs> because uh, I kind of had a, a bit of an oblique path into motion design. And to be honest, even though my career for the past 10 years has been in the motion design industry, I've always at some level kind of felt like a bit of an interloper. My background is in animation and from more of a um, animated short filmmaking practice. You know, the animation industry, uh, in terms of it being a career path, has a certain set of limitations on it. Um, I don't know how the industry works uh, outside of the U.S., but in the U.S., you know, the main kind of outlets for animation as a career are either to go into feature filmmaking, which was not something that I was ever particularly interested in pursuing for a number of reasons. Yeah. Primary among them being that I am a 2D artist and I come from 2D design and illustration and animation. To put it delicately, it's not quite a viable career path in <laughs> the feature film industry these days. Yeah. The other major outlet in the animation industry is in television animation, which there is plenty of 2D opportunity there, but not the not the sort of uh, 2D work that I'm interested in uh, aesthetically or, um, you know, often in terms of the subject either. So I really saw the motion design industry when I was starting out about 10 years ago as um, a space where there was quite a lot of this 
aesthetic uh, experimentation, this kind of um, emphasis on really visually innovative and eye-grabbing and cool and oftentimes very mixed media kind of approach. And so that's what got me interested in the motion design industry. And that's kind of carried me through for the past decade or so. Historically, I know that when I was studying, and we're heading back a couple of decades now, but I saw it for a long time that a lot of the schools were promoting the feature film industry as um, the holy grail of where you would end up working. Mm. A lot of people coming through with graphic design or um, any sort of video aspect to it, but especially for 3D, um, a lot of it was pushing especially in New Zealand, I think, um, I saw it a lot where you could work at Weta and you could work on Lord of the Rings, all these other feature films. It was almost like a golden ticket that they would lure students in with rather than the reality of there being so many more creative opportunities and career paths that I don't think it was easier for tutors and lecturers to articulate what all those variations were. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, certainly in the States, you know, animation education, very often you are being educated by professors or instructors who have either been outside of the industry for a few years or maybe never even worked inside the industry. They might come from more of a personal or an arts practice. So I do think that there's a lot of this... um, a surface level understanding of how the industry operates and that can kind of filter down through in terms of setting proper expectations for students. Yeah. I remember when I was studying, especially the more technical um, courses such as 3D animation, character animation, things like that. um, I had an amazing tutor, but he was actually a student who had done his master's and really focused on Mm. it and hadn't actually gone out into the industry. And there was a little bit of this um, self-prophesizing internal graduation of students becoming teachers. And it's like the reality of going out and working in the variety of different careers that are available and experiencing especially client needs and requests and the reality of working versus almost a theoretical view of the careers available. It was always a little bit, I don't know, I felt a bit not pissed off, but it just didn't feel (laughs) as relevant for what they were trying to teach us. So seeing courses now, a couple of decades later, and a lot of online training, but the brick and mortar, you know, having you come to New Zealand and teaching and having your experience and you working not only in a number of top studios, but working with some really big brands, instantly there's a gravity to what you're presenting in the courses that you're teaching now. I hope so. I hope I can live up to that. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely hear you on, I, I think it's absolutely legitimate for your reaction to be a bit pissed off by education not really preparing you. I mean, honestly, it's to me, I see it as it's not just not preparing students for the reality of the working world, but also not properly setting expectation and yeah. understanding of what the opportunities even are. Yeah, I think something that could be really helpful for educators and something that I've been very much trying to do in this year in my first year of teaching out here is to kind of keep one foot in the industry so that I am still keeping up with a freelance practice. I am still interfacing with these um, studios and these clients um, so that I can bring that into the classroom because, you know, as I don't have to tell you, the motion design industry is changing all the time. Yeah. So I think it's really important to be able to keep up with professional practice as well as education. There's things that I'm wanting to dive into such as gaming but there's, um, which I know that you've um, had a lot of involvement with recently, but yeah. there's a lot of different disciplines that are coming out as real opportunities for motion designers to flex their muscles. AR at the moment is, is really big. VR yeah. has been out there for a while. Um, I think explaining that there are these opportunities, but also being realistic that no one of them is going to be this gold mine of cracking your career open for the rest of your life. It's a, you're always yeah. constantly evolving and evaluating. Yeah. I think that's a really important point and being flexible and being agile in the way that moves that you're able to make. Yeah. Yeah. I really did enjoy my course. I studied at Wanganui School of Design, uh, which was mm. really huge back in, uh, a couple of decades ago. What I got from that was a real deep understanding of design and really mm. taking that time and 
space to study design from typography and creating typefaces and really analyzing all the different disciplines within graphic design before even moving into motion design, which wasn't even there. And that was something yeah. that um, studying it didn't mean that I was going to leave with a piece of work or a showreel that was going to nail me for the rest of my life. It enabled me to look with my own eyes and teach me to research for myself, how to communicate, mm. how to present ideas. You know, these, these soft skills that are a little bit harder to articulate in a curriculum, but so important for a motion mm. designer's tool belt of what will make them successful in their careers. How have you found that side of the requirements for students coming through as well? Yeah, man, that is such an important question. And it's one that I know that we um, really wrestle with quite a lot. I mean, what is the role of the university in 2019 or 2020 or looking forward uh, from here? Because, you know, I think that motion design has really kind of come into its own as an industry and a discipline in and of itself. Um, you know, even when I was starting out back about 10 years ago, it was still it was certainly established, but it was still kind of in this nebulous space where it was kind of drawing from animation. It was drawing from graphic design. It was drawing from illustration. It was drawing from VFX, but it was kind of hybridizing all of these different influences. Whereas now I feel like it really is, has kind of come, come into its own as its own discipline and can be studied as such. Yes. I've been thinking about this a lot, obviously, now that I'm moving into the education space, but there really hasn't been a whole lot of pedagogy developed around how you teach motion design, particularly in a university setting. Because, you know, we have all sorts of these really amazing online resources now for students who are really curious about anything from software training, you know, learning After Effects, learning uh, Photoshop or Illustrator, but also online training programs specific to motion design, you know, like the School of Motion, for instance. Yeah. These courses are being taught by people who come from the industry and teach these kind of one-off special topics. While I think it's really fantastic for students who are curious about motion design to have those perspectives, I still feel like the, the way it's taught, people are kind of coming from their own particular professional practice and it's still a bit siloed you know like you might have a designer come in and teaching to design an animator coming in and teaching to animation I don't think anybody's really gotten their arms around what motion design is as an educational pedagogy yeah I feel like I've kind of come at motion design a bit from the outside and even now you know a lot of my influences and the, the types of work that I'm interested in don't necessarily come from within motion design and how do you take those influences and bring them into the space? I think it's a really important role for educators to be able to expose students to a broad variety of work, but also give them the tools that they need in order to actually apply it. Yeah. And I certainly don't have the answers yet. <laughs> it's something that we're having a lot of conversations about now. But I see it as a real opportunity because, I mean, not just in New Zealand, but I, I think around the world, you know, there's very few universities that really have a dedicated motion design track. Uh, they exist for sure, but it's not, it's certainly not as well established as uh, something like animation or graphic design yeah. or visual effects. And I see a real opportunity there. Completely agree. I th I recently went to Melbourne Node Fest. Um, it's for motion designers. It's a great festival, and there was an announcement yeah. that one of the Australian schools is actually doing a degree in motion design. It's the first one that I've ever heard of. Oh, fantastic! But it's so it's so new. And just touching on some of the points that you're talking about, that it is the influence of so many things that makes motion design, and it can literally be anything. So people that I really admire, such as with having a longevity in their career and reinventing themselves like Ash Thorpe or G-Monk mm -hmm. or other top artists, they're always reinventing the pool of influence and what their inspiration is and what they're looking for. And it's never... In motion design, it's usually taking from all these other exterior art influences, just as you yeah. said. There's so much um, power in being able to repurpose and be influenced by literally anything. So then it becomes a process of understanding how you might utilize those influences in your own work. 
and I suppose that's the difference between art and design a little bit is also have a collaboration with a brand or a client or a group of other yeah. people rather than just your own internal thoughts and feelings and emotions coming through the work. Yeah, not an easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> not an easy yeah. question to answer. <laughs> It's really not. Yeah. We're going to do our best as we're pushing forward here at Vic. At this point, we don't have a dedicated motion design track, but we do what we do have. And I think is um, working really well with the students that we have here is a really just phenomenal faculty that come from all sorts of these backgrounds, bringing in uh, experience from typography, bringing in experience from uh, graphic novels and comics animation, all of these different uh, fields. And I think that we have been able to get some really strong work out of the students so far uh, in that kind of cross-disciplinary thinking. And it's made for some really unusual and edgy and really interesting work. And I think that that, I mean, that's what drew me into the motion design industry in the first place, that feeling of experimentation and and play and mixing of all of these influences. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my own education. Um, so much of where I ended up was only because I had no clear pathway of what I yeah. was going to become. So it's been exposed by many different disciplines and finding the ones that you really gravitate towards, but also how you mix them together. So the fact that doing so much around music and audio growing up for me was hugely influential Mm. in editing or motion design just that influence of music and audio which is something that I think that is really difficult to give students on an online education platform it's saying here's a variety of different classes and not just drilling down on one, but like mixing them together like you would a normal curriculum through a semester. So you've been exposed yeah. to lots of different things bit by bit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that the advantage of a university is also in critical engagement with work because I think that so much of the um, online education resources are very output focused. You know, they'll teach you how to make a logo or how to make a short animation that fulfills these specific parameters. There's really not a lot that I've seen in the online education space that really engages with the work critically as a media discipline. And I think that's also a really important piece of the puzzle there. And I think that it really speaks to that kind of interdisciplinary uh, mindset as well. The courses that are available online, their training resources such as School of Motion or FX PhD for more visual effects based mm. content, or even Kerry Smith of Division 5, who really has his own sets of curriculum. Amazing content. But I agree that actually it's amazing content for those who know specifically that's what they're wanting to do, but also that they're really disciplined in doing it because I've actually enrolled um, people who have been working with me to expand their skill sets doing some Mm. of these courses. It takes a really dedicated type of person who that fits with to be able to Mm. complete it and get the best out of it. And I'm thinking of uh, my own nephew when he was finishing school He was thinking about doing something in the audio, video, possibly motion industry. But like Mm. so many other graduating high school students, he really didn't have any clue as to what that was or what he felt like he was going to do. And he needed that opportunity to sort of explore explore the options before actually committing. And, And it's really hard if you're not even sure about what you want to do to then drill down into an industry and tap into the great resources available when you're really kind of ignorant to what it is to start with. Yeah. As you said, you felt like that as a student. I certainly did. Yeah. I knew that I, when I started um, my master's in animation, I knew that I was interested in animation as a form, as a discipline. I didn't even know what questions to ask, <laughs> let alone what the answers might be. So school was definitely a very, it, it was all about discovery for me as well. And it was only by having that space to really dive deeper into um, the discipline and the history and all the various forms of it before I even knew. I mean, to be honest, I don't even think I was aware of motion design before I started school. It was through exposure through school that I, that I was able to identify 
a possible path forward for myself professionally. Yeah. Um, and even then it was, it was quite a messy path. You know? <laughs> I definitely ping ponged around <laughs> some, some weird corners before I ended up here, but yeah. Which all sort of lay into the fabric of your career. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to see those twists and turns for what they are until later with a bit of retrospective view on it. Yeah. That's a, but yeah, that's a really smart point. Yeah, you kind of narrativize it for yourself in hindsight. Yeah. But when, when it's happening, it just feels like a big fucking mess. You know? Yeah, um, I felt, felt like yeah. myself in a big mess many times. I, yeah. I, some of the classes that I remember from studying that were really influential on me would really not be seen as part of motion design in any way. Um, I remember having an art history class that was mm-hmm. really influential in the way that the tutor taught it. We thought it was a bit whacked and weird to start with. What it was was <laughs> he had a Barbie doll in the first lesson. He's like, right, this is Barbie. Who knows Barbie? And it's like, yeah, we know who Barbie is. And it's like, right, <laughs> this week we're going to be studying X era in design history. And you have to design for next week an outfit for Barbie. So every week we studied a different period of design history and we had to create an outfit. Wow. It was only at the end that... Um, that exercise really stuck in everybody's minds. And I remember talking to other people who have gone on to work at the mill and future deluxe and other top studios around the world. Those students were really influenced by classes like that. that were outside the square of teaching a subject matter in a different way. Yeah, And especially at the end of the semester where he had a barbecue to basically torch the corporate symbol of you know, <laughs> inequality. And it was things like that. that I, want take, I want to take that class. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> it was a really cool class. If I had something online to teach me design history, I'd, I'm pretty sure it'd be pretty hard pressed to find something like that that would influence me and be so memorable 20 years later. Yeah. You've hit on another really important point, which is I think so much of that comes out of that face-to-face interaction in the classroom with the teacher, with the other students. And that's something that absolutely can't be replicated using online resources. You know, you can't replicate the kind of discussions and conversations and really deep collaborative thinking around these these things. Yeah. Yeah, well, so many people that I respect who have come from New Zealand and working in the industry, I was fortunate to study with a lot of them that are like close friends. And it's those times of knuckling down for, a, a, you know, that crunch time at the end of a project being due that we're all sort of jamming together and going, what are you doing? And, and, and it's almost that osmosis of seeing the process playing out with the people around you as well, which... Yeah. It, and you have the opportunity to go, oh, what are you doing there? rather than somebody presenting their best foot forward online of what they're doing. You're actually seeing the raw process of others as well that I found really influential. Yeah, you know, it's like we we talk about, I feel like this conversation happens all the time in social media, how, you know, in the context of social media, we always talk about, you're looking at everybody's highlight reel. And I think for creative work, for the most part, you're only seeing successful outputs. Yes. And once in a while, you know, there will be a behind the scenes process video that gets made. Those are always fascinating, but they also only tend to get made around really successful projects. You know, yeah. so it's like, here's how a really successful thing gets made. But being able to actually be in the trenches with other people who are just figuring it out and failing and learning messy lessons, that's really valuable. I also um, really remember how nervous I'd be before presenting to the class and the tutors and having, oh, yeah. <laughs> having to communicate your own ideas and process, but having your peers give critiques on it as well and how hard it is to actually critique people who you really like. And, it's, and these yeah. skills are very necessary to thicken up the skin and to be able to articulate and put your own thoughts about your own work or someone else's work out there into the world without being disrespectful or personal. It's about trying to give advice that's really going to strengthen the work and being able to learn how to take that advice on and see it for what it is. Yeah. I mean, I really see um, the creative process, I feel like, is so fundamental to who we are as human beings. There are people who who engage with creativity in more or less intimate ways in their lives, 
But creativity is such a core piece of who we are. And I really feel that going through the creative process for yourself and seeing others go through that process, it breeds a kind of camaraderie and a kind of compassion. Yeah. Also see that as really fundamental to just the concept of arts education in general. You know, it's not just about developing your own your own skill base. It's also about developing your conceptualization, your imaginative skills, and your communication skills. And all of these are building blocks to basically better humans. I really see arts education more broadly as a, a shortcut to, to making better humans. Yeah. The reason why I really wanted to have you on, on the show, apart from the fact that I love your work, and we're going to talk oh, about that very soon, is that there is a massive amount of discussion last year or so, especially about online versus brick and mortar education. Yes. I think that something that I really valued in my own education is a space to fail. And it's something that's really hard to teach mm. as well, where everybody's supposed to be succeeding. But actually, creative process is literally about giving yourself the approval and the space to fail. Because without those failures, you will not grow, you have to be willing to try things, experiment, throw them away, maybe yeah. pick them back up later, because you see it in a different light. But it's really hard when you're presenting yourself in a, an environment such as online where you don't know who is watching and mm -hmm. in a classroom where you've gone through the semesters and you've gone through the hard times and the good with everybody that you, they do become your family after a three year period. That gives you that space to allow yourself to fail a lot more, I feel personally. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're reminding me of this quote that I just recently read. And I'm going to embarrass myself by not remembering a either where I read it or b who actually said it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because cool. I think it's important around this idea of mastery and the expert, what is an expert? And this quote that I read put it as, you know, a master of something is someone who's made all the mistakes they possibly could. Yeah you know, within their discipline. I think that's such a nice way of putting it. You know, you, you really cannot master something until you have made mountains and mountains of mistakes yeah. on the way towards the refinement of your craft and having that safe space. I actually don't have a very um, big online presence. It's kind of remarkable to think that we're in 2019 and I really don't engage with social media much at all, actually. And part of the reason I don't is I don't necessarily feel a kinship with the way of, but it's just the way that it operates, you know, like the, the, this idea that you're meant to be putting out all of this output, it's kind of tailor made to celebrate successes over process. Yeah. And I, and I can imagine, you know, I was lucky enough when I was coming into the working world that I guess the last generation that would, would be able to get by without having that kind of online presence. But I really am grateful for that. Someone like myself, like I'm not a particularly um, prolific in my own, um, the number of projects that I make. I tend to make a small number of projects and think about them quite deeply. And I'm not always in a position where I'm able to share that process. Because for me, a lot of that process is conceptual messy. It's not something that uh, is really made for other people to see. And it's only once I've kind of gone through the muck of it that I can uh, kind of go back, not not unlike my career. <laughs> once I've gone through the muck of it, I can look back and I can kind of pick out the narrative. And I don't think that that kind of uh, working style is really suited to the way uh, building these the, this kind of online persona um, operates, you know? Yeah. And I do worry about you know, the students that I'm teaching now who are starting out and there's all of this pressure to be immediately putting out not just high level work, but a really high um, output. You know, you really have to be prolific in order to get yourself out there. And I and I don't think that that model works for everybody. And it, and it makes me sad to think that there are people out there who might be discouraged from pursuing something that they might actually be really successful at, but because they can't uh, effectively interface with that way of putting themselves out there. Yeah. It, it's very it, high pressure. It, yeah. At Node, um, the Motion Design Festival in Melbourne, mm -hmm. a previous guest whose episode is actually releasing today, 
So um, mm. have a listen with that. Um, Jason Pooley, he actually um, talked about that, about the pressure of putting work out there as a professional and trying to, um, you know, this, this culture of daily output and that, mm. that work having to be of such an exceptional standard and how unrealistic it is and how dangerous it can be for your own uh, mental health. And yes. yeah, so that was a big part of his um, discussion and his presentation at Node was about his own um, struggles with depression and how he's gone through that. And yeah. I have no idea as a student how you could even propel yourself forward to even try seeing all this amazing work out there. Yeah. Because the reality is, it's that old adage of give a class six months, one class has to make 10,000 pots. And then one class has to make one pot in that term. Basically, the class that does 10,000 is going to get to a much higher standard much faster because it's just about iteration, trying, really running through the process, but understanding as well. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, allowing yourself that freedom to try things and to fail and to explore. And if you're putting that pressure of yourself having to try and put it out there in a social media profile or platform, it, yeah. it really, that becomes the focus rather than what you're actually trying to do, which is so exactly, dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that it's, it can give a false impression because it also, I mean, cream doesn't always rise to the top, you know, yeah. <laughs> you can, you can see examples of people out there who are doing absolutely amazing work that maybe doesn't have the same traction as work that I don't think is as rigorous or as interesting or as um, or as polished. The kind of bite-sized uh, attention span, you know, where you're just trying to grab eyeballs for a few seconds at a time, not all forms of work are appropriate for that. Yeah. And I think for, for people who don't produce work that's in that vein, not only is it difficult to, to try to force your work to kind of meet this standard that it, it doesn't quite mesh with, it can also give you like a real false impression of your own potential when you're seeing people who are who might be more prolific, but putting out work that's less conceptually rigorous or less thoughtful about process. I always find it so interesting to have these conversations and how they always loop back even the work that is acclaimed and but it's so self-referential in mm. that it's feeding off its own industry rather than the work mm -hmm. that's actually really groundbreaking that is really looking outside and exploring new thoughts yeah absolutely okay i want to like discuss your work because i find it really inspirational and we'll have a link to your site but your real does sum up a lot of your professional and some personal projects and showcases your style or style that you're presenting in your reel. And I love yeah. that um, it's just something that I haven't really explored, but that frame-by-frame frame 2D cell animation style that, um, that you nail so effectively. It's such a beautiful reel. Really great work. Thank you. Obviously, my first love is, you know, 2D hand-drawn animation. And I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to practice that quite a bit within the motion design industry and in many different forms have worked on anything from really heavy character animation into like completely abstract, more effects-based kind of animation. But the thing that I really love about 2D work uh, and particularly frame-by-frame hand-drawn 2D work is just how direct it is. Uh, when I first started my career, I had actually, I actually started as a compositor. So I was doing a lot of After Effects work because I sort of saw that as my, what I assumed was going to be the bread and butter of a professional skill set. And again, this kind of, this kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, as a student, not really understanding what's out there and what's possible. Yeah. Um, so I had formed this idea in my head that I needed to be a compositor or I needed to, to, um, I needed to have this, what in my student mind was a professional skill. And it wasn't necessarily something that I was going to enjoy as much, but it's something that I thought I would have more work doing. It really wasn't until I actually had been working for a year or two that I realized what the real landscape for that kind of 2D work would be. And even then, you know, I thought, well, you know, the motion design industry, you know, it's always going through these phases and these trends. And I thought, well, 
maybe this will last a few years. You know, I can get a good three to five years out of it and then we'll have to move on to something else. But it really seems like it has had this kind of incredible staying power. Yeah. And I th- I don't know. I just think that there's something that viscerally connects with people about 2D animation. Like it's a, um, you can really see the hand of the artist in it, I think, in a way that even though that artist is present in all forms of animation, I think it feels more visceral or more direct in 2D animation. Yeah. Yeah. Totally understand what you're saying. 3D is a real staple of the industry and isn't going to mm-hmm. ever go away. And in the same way, 2D is also just such an important part of the work that we do. Having done a lot of 3D myself, trying to bring in that human hand into the work takes a lot of work for 3D. Yeah. Where you just yeah. instinctively get that for free when you're doing 2D and you can see it, that personality of the person behind it coming through. Yeah. You know, even when you're doing it, I have very limited experience with 3D animation, but it's something that, you know, I struggled to uh, find a foothold for myself into that process just because I, um, Doing 2D, I just feel so connected to what I'm doing. My artistic background is all in drawing and handmade kind of, uh, you know, sculpture and all of these things where you're you're physically manipulating your materials with your hands. And there is still, even though all of the tools these days are digital, you know, I still have, instead of a pencil, I've got my stylus. And instead of paper, I've got my Cintiq. But that process of feeling like I'm really handcrafting frame by frame is still there for me. You know, as an artist, you always have to consider your materials. And 3D is a material. I don't mean to make it sound like I don't think there's this material aspect to 3D animation. There absolutely is. All of these disciplines have a process and materials that inform how you uh, engage with them as an artist. For me personally, that connection was just much more immediate. It has always been much more immediate with 2D And I also think that what comes out of the process of 2D is you can really find your way through on this kind of instinctual level with 2D, uh, at least for myself. I don't mean to make it sound like there aren't people who might feel this way about other processes, but even now I often surprise myself, you know, when I'm working on something and I I can't quite figure it out or I can't, you know, I'm trying to over control something, but sometimes you just zone out. You just let your hands go, and then at the end of it, you're like, I have no idea how I made that. <laughs> it just <laughs> it just happened. Um, and I really love that the process can still be surprising uh, after all these years. Yeah, a good software evaporates to allow a process just, yeah. just happen. The more technical the software, the harder that is. Like You have to be really thoughtful about where you're heading because otherwise yeah. it can be quite messy. I am quite envious of having that ability. And it's something that I do want to focus on is actually um, strengthening my illustration and um, looking at 2D animation. Even if it's not something that end up putting in work again, it's having another influence. Just as I love photography for the same reason. I don't want to be a professional yeah. photographer, but it influences my thoughts and the work so much. Opening yourself up to that is really important. Yeah. I really love the illustrations and the animation that you're creating for motion. But what I find really interesting, and I think that a lot of people in this industry are trying to think and find a way through, moving themselves into different platforms and Mm. opportunities so that it's not just work for hire. It is actually... Um, creating something more for yourself that um, has its own income streams and opportunities as well. I think it's really important for our industry to start thinking about that. And that's why I was quite quite excited to talk to you about a project that you've been working on, which is in the games. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what that project is? Sure. Yeah, I actually, I've been working more and more in the uh, games and interactive space recently and one of the projects that I've been working on for quite quite a while now, I mean, speaking of, you know, having these long timelines and heavy conceptual loads, you know, there's a um, project that my husband and I have been developing together called Thin Air. And it is a game. It's a third person, kind of a puzzle game. We're calling it a psychological puzzle game. It's very much influenced by my experience in visually, by my experience in 2D animation and has this very uh, kind of cell animation look to it. And uh, it's a project that we initially incubated through a program called Stugen, which is this indie games accelerator based out of Sweden. So that was kind of our first taste at the residency slash incubator lifestyle. 
Um, and then more recently, we took it to the Sundance New Frontier Story Lab, which is hosted at the Sundance Institute in Park City, Utah. And it's been a really hugely educational process to work on a game because for as much as I consider animation to be an incredibly multidisciplinary form of media, games has been kind of that times 10 for, for me because it, you know, when you're moving from a linear format where you as the creator, um, even if you're working in a team, you know, there's there's quite a lot of thought and consideration going frame by frame into every single moment that the uh, audience is going to experience. And it's very much about crafting this absolutely bespoke, um, well-conceived uh, thing that is meant to ex be experienced in this one way. Yeah. And then you move into interactive and... For all your best intentions, you actually have no idea, once you put that thing into somebody else's hands, what they're going to do with it and how they're going to experience it. Experience it. Games are, is a, a field that I've been interested in you know, since I was young. I grew up playing games. I've, I've always been interested as a player. But once you start actually making games and seeing the amount of thought that has to go into how that experience, how you're best setting up that experience to be received, but with the understanding that it's it's a real relation, it's an active relationship with your audience in this way that uh, making linear outputs is not. Yeah, and 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 it's also made me very really appreciate why there are so many games out there that are very genre focused. You know, the games industry is is a very genre heavy industry. And it's one that I'm kind of always uh, in my private conversations with other uh, makers, you know, we're always kind of critiquing the comparative lack of experimentation that can be observed on kind of the visible face of the games industry as an industry. Um, even though there is a lot of really interesting experimental work going on in indie gaming. Yeah. But I kind of get it, you know, now that I've I've gone through um, a couple of projects, it can be really easy to fall back on genre because there are so many variables that go into crafting a really tight uh, interactive experience for your audience. Um, but that being said, I'm always uh, excited about people who are really pushing that medium forward as as really a new kind of an art form. And I think that there's just incredible swaths of fertile ground that has not yet been tilled in that field. And a big part of the reason why I wanted to move into it was really out of this desire to, to experiment conceptually with this form. And it's, of course, a really nice side effect of the games industry that for once you can actually uh, potentially get paid for your work, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> you can actually make money off it and you can monetize it in a way that no one is ever going to get rich making a short animated film, you know, but yeah. you can make some money by monetizing a game project. Whether it happens or not is a completely separate question, <laughs> but the potential, the potential is there. I look at what has the potential to become a hit 20 years ago. I'd never think that Minecraft would be the success it was. And yeah, you, you just, something just resonates with an audience and gets picked up. Yeah. We've had some really interesting examples too of people coming from motion or animation and making some really successful game projects. You know, David O'Reilly is the first one who, who comes to mind. You know, he's made just some of the best animated shorts of the last decade. And then since he's moved into interactive, he's absolutely killing it. And um, I don't know if you've seen or played everything, but I think that's such a fantastic example of a game that is really actually meaningfully experimenting with the medium of games. And it's so interesting to me that that, that project came from somebody who came from a background outside of games you yeah. know sometimes it takes people from outside of a medium to really understand what the potential is there and shake things up and it's such a massive market you know one of the biggest markets financially in entertainment yeah. just like hollywood the blockbusters they sort of have this formula that you can see in the work the gaming industry those outliers the indie market of having really experimental visuals and interactions just such a massive yeah. opportunity if you pick up even the small percentage of the market that's still a massive market yeah i mean that being said you know it has kind of the flip side of it is that it has very much been our experience in uh, pursuing funding 
that because games is such a young industry and because there are a lot of these really successful games programs at universities and schools around the world, there's this kind of a, a, a skewed perception on how much a game should cost to produce, especially yeah. in the indie market, because you're very much find yourself kind of competing with a couple of kids who are fresh out of college working in mom's basement and happy to do that for a year, maybe even two in order to get their first title out. And I think there is some challenge uh, coming from an industry like motion design, where we are used to, you know, that sweet, sweet client money (laughs) coming in, trying to apply that really high professional level of, of quality in a space that really isn't at least right now, tends to operate at, at the lower end of the budget scale. It does seem like that is starting to change a little bit, like especially the introduction of these new services like Apple Arcade just went live. And I think Google is developing, you know, they, they've got their own platform now. And I think we are going to see a little bit more of the, um, what I'm hoping is more of the, like kind of the Netflix model yeah. where, um, you know, these wealthy tech heavy companies will um, be willing to invest legitimate budgets into um, these smaller projects. But like with our own project, I mean, I can also say that it's been, we've, we've certainly had an uphill battle with our project because I, I didn't really give you the log line of it, but it's essentially a, a story of a um, middle-aged woman who's been recently widowed. She's more or less estranged from her only daughter. They have a very fractured relationship. Um, and kind of in the wake of the death of her husband, she's at a point where she really needs to reassess her life And as part of this, she goes on this, um, let's say, a psychedelic journey (laughs) where she's uh, off seeking out and uh, consuming this plant that causes visions. I can identify a few touch points here that make this quite a hard sell for the for the game (laughs) industry in terms of, you know, giving us loads and loads of money to make this thing. First of all, having like a a 50 year old woman be your protagonist is uh, a bit of a poison pill in and of itself. And then in addition to have uh, an actual psychedelic substance has also been another hurdle to get over. And it's we've gone out pitching a few times now and we've never had a problem getting people excited about the creative and we've even had, you know, a few close calls where we've had people really pushing for us. And yet the minute the wallets have to open, you know, the money guys come in and they, they like, now, wait a minute. This is a roundabout way of saying the blessing and the curse of the, the games industry. Is, there, there is a lot of money to be made there, but um, it is still a very um, financially oriented uh, industry. And it can be difficult unless you you're able to find capital through, you know, non-traditional means, whether that's crowdfunding or, you know, you're able to just find kind of an angel investor to come on board and give it a shot. It can, in our experience, it can be difficult to get the major platforms or the major publishers behind a truly experimental kind of project or something that's really, you know, pushing a few, a few buttons in a, um, a way that they find uncomfortable. I've heard so much about the Hollywood system that being a very similar thing where producers don't tend to get fired for saying no. Um, It's taking the chance (laughs) that puts people into problematic situations so they're not willing to. So, yeah, it'll be um, awesome to catch up with you down the line, see how it plays out with you moving into this field more and more. Yeah. It's exciting to know that there are just other opportunities to apply your your craft and your skills to, but the reality of actually making that financially successful is, is never easy. Yeah, it's definitely a crowded marketplace. But it's exciting. I'm more excited about games than I am about really any other corner of the industry right now, because I do see so much opportunity for experimentation and uh, novelty in the way in conceptual novelty, yeah. you know? Yeah, I've been yeah. playing around with some AR at the moment and um, mm. bringing animation into that space. Mm-hmm. Viewing your craft through a different lens, no matter what that is, always gives you a, a fresh boost for your own inspiration yeah yeah and now it's time for the pro video packs this is the section of the show everybody out there gets to be inspired by what inspires you so the pro video pack this could be anything that you really want what is a pro video pack for you for my inspiration pick 
Cool. The, this is water speech. I didn't, you know, I didn't include a link because that speech sort of made the rounds a few years ago. I think it was back in probably 2012 or 2013 because um, somebody made a kind of a, a, a motion video, um, this place in Los Angeles, I think they're called the glossary. They made this, um, this motion video kind of using the audio from this famous speech that David Foster Wallace gave called this is water, which was a, um, I think it was a graduation speech he gave at um, uh, Kenyon College back in the early 2000s, 2004, 2005, something like this. Um, and so they took the audio of this speech and they made this little 10-minute video, which I believe the David Foster Wallace, whoever is in charge of uh, his literary trust, actually asked them to remove the video because they had done it without permission which is a shame because it was a really nice video, but you can actually find his longer speech, like the full speech itself, which I think is about 22, 23 minutes long on YouTube. And I picked that because I just feel like it's David Foster Wallace is such an um, absolutely, I mean, obviously he's, a, he's an incredibly eloquent writer and speaker, but it really kind of cuts to the heart of a lot of the things that I've been thinking about lately in the world. And it's all about recognizing your own context and recognizing, um, looking at things that you really take for granted and uh, actually calling them out and examining them. The title of it comes from this story of, you know, these two fish that are swimming through the water and this, um, this other fish is swimming along and says, hey, how's the water today? And they go, oh yeah, it's fine, it's fine. And then the fish swims on and then the two fish look at each other and one of them goes to the other, what the hell is water? You know, which is such a great little um, uh, fable, you know, around how easy it is to kind of uh, lose sight of, you know, you take, you take the world around you for granted and to really lose sight of the actual elements that construct what we kind of take for granted as our reality. I think it's an absolutely fantastic speech for any artist to watch in the context of their own work, but also, you know, in the context of the political realities of the world these days, where I think it's very, very easy to lose sight of the water. It just feels incredibly timely or maybe i should say timeless i mean the thing is yeah. 15 years old and it feels as relevant today as it did then if not more yeah, yeah. history seems to repeat a lot mm. these yeah. lessons i don't know if humanity learns them too deeply enough for them not to keep happening again anyway yeah awesome i'll have a link for that in the show notes okay following I deliberately picked a bunch of people that whose work I'm really interested in these days. Cool. Um, I don't think any of them actually come from motion. Uh, I mean, I might have thrown Ori Tor in there, who I'm always uh, I, I love following Ori Tor because he's uh, you know he's this Israeli um, illustrator and designer and animator who does these just incredible 2D abstract. It's almost like 2D uh, digital sculptures with 2D hand drawn animation, cool. and I uh, absolutely love his work. But I think outside of that, I think I was pulling from people from all over the place, like short filmmakers. I recently watched this, you know, I did some judging for the um, Animation Now uh, showcase, which is part of the New Zealand International Film Festival. And one of the films that was entered into that program is a film called Egg by um, a woman named Marina Scarapelli, I think is her name. She's an Italian animated filmmaker. And it's just incredible. And of course, I did like a deep dive into all of her other work after I uh, after I watched it. But that film, Egg, has just recently been released on Vimeo because it uh, I think it finished its festival circuit awesome. recently. Uh, won a ton of awards, and it's absolutely um, amazing. Wicked. Well, we'll, ha well, I'll track down the link for that and share it as well. That yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, and I think I threw in. Um, Wong Ping is another uh, animator that I, whose work I just absolutely adore. Um, he is a Chinese uh, animator and he does these, I mean, man, he goes to some, some incredibly dark, perverse, unabashedly uh, perversely sexual, but also hilarious uh, short films. Um, I think I threw a link to one of his films in there. I've, it's funny, like I, I often play his work in class as a way of testing the boundaries of my students, because I do think that um, boundary testing is something that can get, you know, with all of the talk around, um, you know, 
being sensitive and being including things like trigger warnings and all of this stuff that that we have to be um, really cognizant of as uh, educators. And I do think that all of that is performing a really important social role. But I also think we're maybe sometimes losing sight of areas where we can really push the envelope and embrace discomfort. Because I do think that there's a value in, in making people uncomfortable in the right way. I don't mean uncomfortable by being insensitive or being offensive to people's identities or to people's backgrounds, but um, in terms of the kind of subject matter that we choose to, to bring into the classroom, I do like to push those boundaries when I can, and Wang Ping certainly will. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it still amazes me how the ratings of films where violence, you know, has such a lower rating to anything containing sexuality or sex in it. It's, it seems bizarre it to me. It shows a real fundamental insanity about human society, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, I mean, it feeds right back into that David Foster Wallace talk about this is water, right? You know, we kind of take that for granted. But why? Yeah. Why should we be so, so afraid to talk about uh, sexuality? And yet I could go into the classroom tomorrow and probably play clips of films where people are being shot up or beheaded or stabbed or whatever. And yeah. uh, that would be perfectly acceptable applications of uh, visual effects or whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> or explosions and, you know, all of this stuff. It's, that's fine. We'll have the link to um, that video as well. Any others that you wanted to share? Yeah, there's a couple others that come from games. Uh, one is a game that I saw back at Amaze Berlin, which is an um, independent games festival. They have uh, outpost all around the world. But I, I saw this in Berlin, I think in 2017. It's a um, game called Everything Will Be Okay, or Everything Is Going to Be Okay, excuse me, by uh, Natalie Lawhead. I wanted to include this because it's available on Itch.io. I don't know if you're familiar with that platform, but it's a it's an indie game uh, dissemination platform where most of the projects are either free or very low cost. You won't find anything there that's more than $5. And this project in particular is, you know, you can pay whatever you want for it. And I think I included the link there. And it's just, a, I think it's a really phenomenal example of the type of uh, experimentation that's happening in the indie game space. She calls it a digital zine, uh, not really a game. It definitely has elements of gameplay. And it's really a, um, just an incredibly smart and funny, visually distinctive exploration of depression just like the crushing existential depression of being alive in 2017, 2018, 2019, whatever, yeah. whichever, whichever year we're in uh, now. She made it back in 2017. But um, and it's just hilarious. I really I, I always appreciate when people can make uh, work around really heavy subjects like uh, mental health and depression and existential horror and make them incredibly funny and engaging. And um, it really makes you feel, you know, not only that you're not alone in uh, these struggles yourself, but that it's okay to laugh at them. I mean, I just love it on every level. And I really recommend that, that people go and check that out. Awesome. Well, if you're not curious by that um, explanation, I don't know what will get you clicking through. <laughs> so I'm really intrigued to check it out. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, anything else? I think I might have mentioned everything by David O'Reilly, which we've already talked yep. about. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for those. Um, I love seeing what guests put into this section of the show, and it really opens me up to finding things that are influential and inspirational. And um, so I hope all the listeners check through, but selfishly, I'm just keen to get the links for myself. So that works out well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear what you think. Let me know. I will. I will. Awesome. So um, where should everybody follow you online? I know that you don't have a big social media presence, uh, you were saying before, but is there somewhere for yeah, people to check your I'm work I'm just out? the worst at that. I don't <laughs> really engage with it. So um, if people can find me on either Twitter or Instagram, I will be very impressed. I do actually <laughs> exist there. I just never post anything. <laughs> the more regular uh, places that I post are on my Vimeo page or on my uh, website. Cool. And even there, I'm not very good about keeping up super up to date on that stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last question for the pro video pick section is um, who do you think should be on the show? Who would you like to see on here in the future? Yeah. You know, I specifically called out um, a friend of mine named uh, Nicole McDonald, who I think would be great to get on the show because she comes from um, the commercial industry, motion design, a little bit of VFX 
but she has been working in VR. Cool. And she's doing some really, really interesting work. And uh, I thought she would be a great one to have on the show. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I'll um, be hitting you up for contact email and <laughs> I'll yeah. try and twist around to come on the show. You might have to yeah. encourage her and tell her that it's not as painful as you think it might be. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put in a good word. I'll put in a good word. <laughs> <With you. laughs> thank you so much, Laura, for being on the show. Really, really appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank you. This is really fun bit of a long time since we first talked about it for it to happen we met up in Auckland at Assembly we had a small little community event and um, you flew up from Wellington and met and hung out with everybody in the Auckland crowd and yeah it was wicked to meet you in person there that was quite a few months ago now yeah, I had a great time up there. I want to come back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody, Johnny, um, Frankie, um, Helen, everybody at Assembly, such a good crew. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really so wonderful to meet everybody. I met Johnny down here at an event down in Wellington. Yeah. And uh, he was kind enough to invite me up there. And it was just so great to meet everybody. It's it's a really, really nice group of people you've got here. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. them. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again for being on. Yeah, thank you, Flair. And thank you, everybody else, for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed this show, please go to iTunes, rate, and leave a little review. Also, if you're keen to connect online, there'll be a link in the show notes for the Slack group. Anybody can join. And so we're just chatting about lots of various topics and about the industry, but also just sharing work, putting forward opportunities for jobs and things like that. And um, yeah, just uh, trying to like organize little catch-ups like uh, Laura came to in Auckland where we just hang out and meet each other once in a while and um basically shoot the gossip about what we do and yeah have a good time so jump in there in the slack group and till next week have a great one all right bye